Hi everyone, welcome back to the Mysterious Missing and Murdered. This is Matt, and of course Mel is also here with a cat. Yep, with a cat. Um, just wanted to apologize real quick at the start uh, for this episode being just a little bit late. Um, we're recording this on the Sunday that it was, after the Friday that it was supposed to publish. Whoopsie. Um, general life stuff has just gotten in the way, general life stress. Um, we're... We've both got a lot going on with work and life right now, so apologies. But we have some big plans and goals for 2019, um, and hopefully after this we'll be back on track for the foreseeable future. So, yeah. anything to add, Mel? No, let's get into it. I'm ready to wrap this one up. All right, this is a really interesting story. So I think we left off last time where they had found uh, the murder victim's body. So, yeah, let's let's dive in. We actually got a little bit more down the trail than that. Um, the police had found DNA, male DNA, on Yara's body, and they named this person Unknown One. And so now their search is to find out who this Unknown One is and find out who killed Yara. So the workload ahead of the team was obviously tremendous, but everyone was taking their jobs super seriously and everyone was throwing themselves in 100%. So uh, Rugery stayed at the head of the operation and she was in charge of, you know, like dividing up tasks and making sure that her team was working efficiently and thoroughly and that they were covering all of their bases. So police were tasked with taking DNA samples from Yara's family, from her friends, from her schoolmates. And people who just in general had been around the sports center. Because those are like the easiest people to start with, right? Right. Just just to verify again, we're in 2010. So like we're at modern levels of DNA technology and DNA yes. profiling and everything. Right, exactly. So they were pretty sure that if they could find the person or find somebody like related to the person, that they could narrow it down to who it was. Right. But right now it's just some dude's DNA. That yeah. doesn't really tell them anything. Some dude who is you know, out there in the nether. Right. So they start kind of close to your circle and then start, you know, having to work their way out a bit. And the military police were tasked with uh, checking phone records to cross-reference all the cell phones that had moved between Bernabate de Sopra to Chignolo de Isla on uh, November 26, 2010. So that so was what they were pronouncing with. Italian things. I just want to point that out. What? You're very good at pronouncing Italian things. And then some Italian listener is going to be like, no, you're terrible. No, I no. can't believe you do this to my people and my language. I can't believe Please you Please don't get mad at me. Her. I just do my best. <laughs> I can't believe you complimented her. She's butchered it. No. Right. <laughs> Better than I could do, for sure. Well, it's a good thing that I'm doing this one then, huh? Yup. So, police had a lot of work ahead of them, right? Because that's a ton of phone records. And I need to start tracing each cell phone user whose phone pinged at both locations because obviously her killer had been in her hometown and then had been where her body was found. Right. So, so it wasn't good enough to have just a cell phone ping at one location or the other. It had to be both. I'm sure it's a good way to limit the scope of work, too. You have a massive number of records, I'm sure. And Oh, yeah. Being able to oh, yeah, for sure. just do an and an and statement is probably, you know, narrows it from hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands to hundreds. 
Right. And, you know, I just want to make note here that this work is slow and laborious. This is not easy work. This is like, except for maybe some initial excluding at the start, this is work that people, like individual people were doing. Mm. So this is like a, like a huge undertaking, a ton of work. And in fact, geneticists from all over the country, so places like Parma, Pavia, Rome, you know, and all these other places were testing the DNA. And it was taking them a minimum of six hours to sample the DNA and translate the data into something which could be read on a computer. For one person? Correct, for one person. Wow, so they're probably taking hundreds of samples of DNA and having to do that for every single one of them. Exactly. And then, you know, obviously some of them are not going to be a match or they're not going to be useful. So, but you still have to do it because you don't know that until it's done. Right. So I didn't realize, I mean, obviously, you know, I knew that it's not as quick as it is in, you know, in law and order when they're like, oh, we got this DNA sample. And like an hour later, they're like, it's a match. But I didn't realize that it was six hours. Or in my you know, favorite. Even just 10 people, right. that's 60. Right. Or even in my, my favorite crime drama, Elf with uh, Will Ferrell, where he like okay. is, is in the doctor's office with the guy who's supposed to be his dad. And, right. and and he's like, yeah, he's your dad. It's like they're in the waiting room for 15 minutes after he pricks his finger. He's like, yeah, he's, he's definitely your dad. There's no way he's not your dad. He's definitely your dad. And I'm like, no, that's right. not. No, that's not how that works. <laughs> it's not how that works at all. So they started by asking specific people for their DNA, like I mentioned. But then the police also asked the public at large to offer up their DNA as well. So obviously they aren't thinking that the killer is going to be dumb enough that they submit their own DNA. But what they're thinking is maybe there will be a like familial link. Right. So like the killer's mom doesn't know that the killer is their son. And so they're like, okay, and submit their DNA, you know, and that would help them narrow it down as well. There was a case recently where somebody had like submitted to 23andMe and they had found out just based on things like that, these familiar relationships where I think it was a woman had submitted her DNA to figure out her, you know, family tree and her lineage and everything. Right. And police contacted her because her father, based on her DNA records, had been the uh, the perpetrator of a rape crime from like less than 10 years prior. So they contacted this woman. They're like, hey, can we have your dad's contact info? And she was like, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> Like, they're not doing this for a good reason. He hasn't won the lottery. Right. Yeah, no, I I, I read this. I'll have to find the article and, and maybe post it in the source comments because it was, it was a really, really interesting case where they, they interviewed her and her reaction to this. And it was just like, what an insane roller coaster ride that must have been for everyone involved. Like, right, for her and her family and everybody. Yeah, yeah no, it's, totally. It's tragic no matter how, like, which way you look at it for everybody involved. Like, right, exactly. No one wants to find out that their dad is, like, a rapist or a murderer. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants their dad to be a rapist or a murderer. So, if you're a father, right. don't rape and murder, please. And, you know, if you're yeah, a person. Yeah, life lesson. Yeah, life lesson. If you're a person, maybe don't. Right. Just in general. That's it. That's great, <laughs> yeah. And so the important thing here to note, getting back to our case, is that they didn't have any leads on Yara's killer. You know, they just knew that Yara's killer was a man, but that was all that they had. So they need that familial relationship or something to go on. Yes, exactly. 
And the public responded actually really well to this. And actually, 22,000 people offered up their DNA to be entered into the database. Oh, my God. Willingly. So people who weren't asked to do so, people who were just like, yeah, I want to help you find her killer, submitted oh their DNA. Oh, my God. That's Right. Crazy. And remember, six hours that's, per. That's 132,000 hours for anyone keeping track. 132,000 man hours. For anyone that knows... Uh, it, there are roughly two, if you work 40 hours a week, there are 2,080 hours in a year of, of working hours, about, about 2,000 hours if you take two weeks of vacation. So that is, what does that work out to? Like, I'm shrugging my shoulders. I'm really bad at math. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to do it in my head. It's like 75 people for a year, their full working careers for a year to do that. Yeah, nothing else, just that. Nothing else, just that. That's insane. It is. And they were committed to testing every single sample they could. Wow. So it's it's literally 66 working man years to do that. Yeah, that's intense. That's shocking. (laughs) And, you know, earlier, if you remember all the way back to two weeks ago when I introduced this case to us, this is part of the reason why this investigation became so costly. Because people need to be paid to do these things. You need to pay people to collect the samples, to process the samples, to get the sample information entered into a database. I mean, this is, you know, and not only that, but also just the cost of like running the tests and using the equipment and everything like that. So this is why this case became so expensive. Yeah, I'm sure like nobody runs a database for DNA that is equipped to immediately handle an influx of 22,000 samples as well. Like I'm sure there was IT resources they had to pay. There's working resources of people just collecting, which are different than the people in the lab actually processing like that. Right. It's, it's an army of people to do a job like this. Exactly. And so they were hard at work, you know, just processing all of this information when on a hot day in May, Yara was laid to rest. So her funeral took place, took place, excuse me, on May 28th, which is three months after her body had been discovered and she had been, you know, returned to her family for burial. Her coffin was pure white and topped with a bouquet of white flowers. And um, like a whole crowd of people came to this city um, to watch her coffin be pulled in a hearse toward the sports center. And it was at the sports center where the town came together to mourn and celebrate her life. Um, and, you know, they chose this gymnasium because there were so many people who wanted to come. And that was like the biggest place in town. And not only that, but it was also an important place to Yara. The crowd was so big that not everybody could fit inside. Oh my so goodness. remember how we were talking about how big it was and it had all these like nooks and crannies, like, it got full and then they had to do overflow to the back. And so they actually had these large screens outside so that people could see what was going on inside because oh they couldn't goodness. get in. No, and that's, that's uh, at the time, uh, Giorgio Napolitino was the president of the Republic and he gave a speech um, offering his condolences for the family. And police also made a statement at the end of the funeral so their statement was not only to reassure her family and the town, but also as a warning to her killer. 
So it was during the statement the police revealed to the public that the DNA gotten at the scene had come from blood, not from saliva or sperm. So before then, people knew, obviously, that they had found some kind of DNA evidence because they were asking everybody for their DNA. But Mm -hmm. here they made kind of like a public statement. So after the funeral, hidden cameras were placed at Yara's gravestone just in case the killer decided to show up. And that's actually very common um, is that someone commits a murder and then they will either go back to the scene of the crime. They will go back to the person's house or go to where they've been buried. That's that's genius. That's good police work and really creepy. Like, oof. Because they're, you know, they're hoping at the back of their minds that the killer will make it easy, right? They're hoping that the killer will slip up and they will find this killer and they will be done with it. Yeah. And at this point, uh, Rugeri knew that her team had processed thousands of samples of DNA, but they still weren't getting any closer to finding Yara's killer. So they decided to start looking somewhere else. So she directed their focus to a nightclub, and it's called um, Sevier Mobili, which is quicksand, apparently, uh, which was close to where Yara's body was found. It's good because, to a nightclub. Yeah, it's good, although also kind of like... Creepy. I don't know. Kind of creepy, yeah. Yes. And so the reason why they decided to you know, pick this place was because police knew that killers often dumped bodies in a place that was familiar to them. Ah. And I hate using that term. I hate describing a human body as being dumped. But I think it's important to note that that's coming from the perspective of the killer. Like, the killer did not care about Yara and treated her like she was trash. So we don't want to treat her that way, but this is how the killer is treating her. Right. So they're thinking, okay, well, maybe this guy is a guy who goes to the nightclub frequently. That's why he brought her here, because he's been around. Okay, that's fair. So it was a long shot, but Ruguri was like, we don't really have any other leads. So, you know, because they can't just do the DNA testing. They can't just only do that and not do legwork. Like, you know, police on the ground legwork. Right. The police aren't the ones doing the DNA testing anyways, so... It's not like right, exactly. They yeah. are not. You're not pulling resources out of the lab to to go canvas the area or anything like that. Right. So instead of just sitting around twiddling their thumbs, here is something for them to work on. Right. So in the spring of 2011, police officers were stationed outside of the nightclub on Friday and Saturday nights, which is obviously when the nightclub is going to be the busiest. And I just want to make a note here to give you a picture for what type of nightclub this was. This nightclub had kind of a strong reputation for violence and people getting out of control. Um, So, for instance, um, a young man from the Dominican Republic had been murdered outside of the nightclub stores, like, only a few months prior on January 16th, 2011. Hmm. So this is a place where people get into fights. This isn't a nightclub, like, a swanky, like, people are wearing, you know, black tie clothes and sipping $30 martinis, like. (laughs) This is a fight club nightclub. Right. And another interesting thing about this nightclub is that the managers stored the records of all of the people who visited. So everybody needed a membership card to enter. So it wasn't really a bar. That's weird. It is weird. Like when I read that, they sort of made it like, like a matter of fact statement. And I'm like, I have never been 
to a nightclub or a bar where I needed a membership card to enter. I mean, that's not surprising because I know that I'm not a member at any nightclubs where I need a membership card to enter, but I've never been like, I've never been downtown and, and refused entry to a nightclub because I wasn't a member. But I guess they don't advertise those types of nightclubs, so I don't know. Right. I don't know, man. If somebody has insight on this, go ahead and shoot us a message because I'm curious. And also, can I come to this swanky nightclub? Because it sounds cool. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Aside well, from the this murder. This one only exists there's... in my mind. Right. If there's you murders can go to ha- this one. Yeah, I don't want to go to this one. If there's murders happening at your swanky nightclub, I don't want to go there. I'm sorry. I'm sure Fair. it's a nice place, but I don't want to be there. Fair. Um, so, this means that management had the names and phone numbers and attendance information of everybody who had been. So you could be like, oh, that's Joe Smith. Right. So like, oh, hey, Joe Smith was here, you know, last Saturday night. And here's his home phone number, which is creepy. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but it's I know Google knows like when I've been to Cub and when I like when I go to Target. Google recently sent me an email saying that uh, like with all the places I've been over the last year and how many times I went to them. But for some reason, it is creepier to me if a CD nightclub owner knows that I've been to his nightclub at specific times on specific days. Like, for some reason... It almost feels like it's for blackmail purposes. Yeah, it almost... I don't know what other purpose that could have. You know? Right. I, I mean, other than lost and found purposes, but that seems unlikely. Right. I don't know. It's, it's, this is this is a very weird nightclub, and it's very good that the police are looking here because there's a lot that's already off about it. Right, exactly. I completely agree. So, management shared all of this information with the police. Not clear if it was willingly or unwillingly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but the police got the information, so they were able to track down the regulars of this nightclub. Because obviously, if somebody has just been there once and it was six years ago... Probably doesn't matter to the case, but if somebody is there very frequently, okay, now, you know, now we're cooking with fire. Right. So they started requesting DNA samples from the patrons, and that's when police got their second break. One such patron had DNA that closely resembled unknown one. So it wasn't unknown one himself, but was resembled closely. Okay. Okay. And... And this man had given his sample willingly. So all these people at this nightclub that they're asking samples from, they're not forcing them to do it. So this dude was like, okay, yeah, you can have my DNA. So this man was called Damiano uh, Guerrioni. And he couldn't be the suspect himself, not only because his DNA didn't match, but also because he had been in South America on the day of Yara's disappearance. So he's not the killer. But geneticists were convinced that he was a blood relative of Unknown One. But his brother. Right. So, um, Ruguri and her team are obviously like, okay, we need to jump on this. So they start to investigate Damiano's family tree. And it was during this that they made a surprising discovery. Damiano's mother, Aurora, had worked for a decade as domestic help in Yara's home. Ah. Right. So she had lived like a couple doors down from the family and throughout the childhood, she would come to the home twice a week and I assume do things like help with laundry, do sweeping, maybe some like cooking, whatever. And she was like a quiet, 
middle-aged woman, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill. And she was very close to her employers and their family. So it's not like they discovered that, like, they had fired her for stealing things and she was bitter about it or something. This is getting creepier. Right! Right? Like, it's such a small world. Yeah. Um. And as a note, I mean, Yara was very close to Aurora, so she would ask her to come to her gymnastics tournaments, you know, even though in 2011, Aurora was no longer working for the family. She was still a family friend. Right. So she's still close to the family. She still cares about, she still cares about them very deeply. So uh, Ruberi and her team are like, okay, we need to vet these two, though, because this is suspicious. Yep. (laughs) So they began to intercept their phone calls, had them followed, and interrogated them several times, being like, so do you know who this killer could be? You know, trying to get whatever information they could out of them. And in the summer of 2011, uh, Ruguri had to accept that it was just a coincidence. A very unlikely coincidence, but that they weren't involved. Hmm. And in fact, like... um. Aurora gave a statement to the press at one point being like, it was just so deeply disturbing to her and so upsetting that she could be related to the killer of like this girl that she loved so very much. Okay, fair. So there's still this DNA link. So like, who the heck is unknown one? Right. right? Like, we need to figure this out. So a year after the death, uh, Ruguri still didn't have a suspect. So there was intense pressure from the public, not only local to the area, but also nationwide at this point to find the perpetrator. So we're into holidays 2011 now. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, as a note, the police were working hard every day on this case, but I'm sure to the public, it looked like they weren't doing anything because they weren't getting updates. They weren't getting... You know, like, oh, they interviewed this new person or this person's a person of interest. Right. So people are like, come on, man, you're spending all of this money and you don't have the killer yet. Yeah. And in fact, a a local man who hadn't been approached for a sample suggested to the media that the investigation was haphazard at best. So some locals were like, well, you never asked me for my DNA, so you're not doing your job. And it's like, well, then why don't you just submit it voluntarily? Yeah. like If you're that concerned about it. Oh, God. Armchair detectives. This is exactly what we try so hard not to be, is armchair detectives. Right. And I just picture it as like some older, like 70s to 80 year old man who's like, well, I think they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Like he's an expert and he's been like a florist his whole life or something. Right. He he participates in showing cats. He has a particularly nice ginger Persian cat that he takes to cat shows all around the country. And that's his right. day job. And, right. And, so he is, he's not a detective. <laughs> right. And he's very qualified to... To know exactly what's going on in this case, in this murder <laughs> investigation, and why they're doing it wrong. Exactly. I watch, I watch a lot of investigation discovery. I know these things. Right. I say. Well, and that's exactly how some politicians reacted as well. In I'm fact, sure. there's this one guy from the Northern League, which I don't really know what that means. I didn't look into it. Someone can educate me if they want. Um, but his name was uh, Daniel Boletti. And he publicly called Ruguri incompetent. And he wrote a letter in 2012 to the Ministry of Justice 
asking her to be replaced by somebody, quote, of proven experience, end quote. Oof. Oof. Well, and let's remember that she cut her teeth on going after mobsters in Sicily. Right. She's not inexperienced. I don't... Especially if I was a politician in the public limelight, there's very few truly clean politicians out there. I guess maybe in Italy it's different, but from what I know about typical European politics, it's not different. There's, I, I don't know, I wouldn't go after a na- like a national investigator who investigated mobsters and is afraid of nothing. Like, I wouldn't, right. <laughs> I wouldn't criticize that just selfishly uh, for my own self-preservation and my own career self-preservation. Because she right. is an investigative, she could probably just, like, dig up dirt on some politician in her sleep and be like, hey, I found this about you. Right, what, what do you want to say about me again? What do your voters think? Hmm? Hmm? Right, exactly. And it's, you know, like, obviously, another part of this, too, is sexism against Ruby. Oh, yeah. You know, she was very unconventional. She was a single mother. She had five piercings in her left ear. She played classical oh. guitar. Oh, no. She had five a piercings? Karate. Five piercings in her left ear? I know. Ear? How dare she? Goodness. Goodness. My sensibilities. Right. Oh, my. Right. And, like, obviously, she has, like, that I don't care what you think about me attitude, but it's still, like wearisome to have people questioning your competence when you're doing everything you can to solve the case and when you have like a vested interest in solving the case like you want to solve it you are doing everything you can and people are like you know well because she's a woman and you know women and their small women brains can't Uh, solve this case yeah when you're not when you're not a you know 511 white man who's between the age of 30 and 45 in a navy blue suit everybody thinks you're not doing everything you should be 2.5 2.5 kids. With 2.5 kids and lives in a, you know, 2,200 square foot exactly house with a two and a half car garage and a white picket fence. Right, exactly. Oof. So Oof. she was like, right. So she was like, okay, whatever. I just got to ignore them. We have to keep investigating Damiano's DNA. So her team was like, okay, here's what we need to do. So they spent months recreating his family tree. Oh my goodness. Yes. So... They eventually had a complete family tree going back to 1815, and some portions of the tree went back as far as 1716. Killer's got to be in there somewhere. Right. The killer is surely in there. (laughs) It was born sometime after 1700 and is probably not dead yet, so we just look at all these people and we'll find him. Right. Find them, yes. So the roots of this family tree were firmly in Gorno, which is a village about 45 minutes, you know, driving uh, north of Bergamo. Um, My favorite thing ever was that uh, in an article I read, it had been described as, quote, a bit too hot in every sense, end quote. Ooh. Implying that they're promiscuous in this village. Right? They should use that as their uh, tourism slogan. Right? (laughs) A bit too hot in every sense, just yeah. in like nice text on a on a sign. Yeah, with maybe like a you know a, a beach chair and an umbrella and a little little martini or something. That would be really good tourism advertisement. Perfect. Maybe like a bikini top just lazily draped over the arm cha- the arm of the beach chair. I can pick up what you're throwing down. I should have gone into marketing anyway. <laughs> um. So Rugby's team discovered that. Damiano's father 
had a brother, so Damiano's uncle, Giuseppe. And Giuseppe was one of 11, which I'm like, oh my god, that's so many kids. That's a lot of kids. And Giuseppe, right. And Giuseppe had died in 1999, so Giuseppe is not the killer. Giuseppe's widow, Laura, showed police documents that belonged to her husband. And through these documents, they were able to find a stamp on an envelope and a stamp on a postcard. So they were like, DNA. So they sequenced the DNA, and that was even closer to Unknown One than Damiano's DNA was. Oh. Right. So this is telling police only one thing, that Unknown One was Giuseppe's son. Yeah, that seems likely. Which you would think would be easy to then narrow it down, but we'll get into that. Oh, no. This promiscuous town. Oh, no. Right. Uh, uh, children out of wedlock. Oh, no. <laughs> He so he had children he didn't know he had. Oh, no. It, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. So Giuseppe was, by all accounts, an average dude. He drove bus for a living. He played the accordion at festivals like one does. Uh, he and his wife, Laura, had, you know, a pretty typical life and marriage. And they had three children, a girl and two boys. So the police already know, okay, their killer is not a girl because it was male DNA. So we're going to focus in on the sons. However, further analysis showed that Unknown One didn't match the DNA of either of his sons, and they didn't have kids. Either so, of the sons he knew he had. Hmm? Hmm? Y- yes. Yes, exactly. So police are convinced that Giuseppe is the father of Unknown One, so like you said, somewhere out there he has an illegitimate son. What a way to find out. Right. So uh, Ruggeri described this as the investigation within the investigation. Because now they're hunting for a woman who 30 to 40 years ago or so had had an affair and had given birth to a son who then would later murder Yara. That's a tough one. (laughs) So the investigation within the investigation, like I said, lots of twists and turns in this case. So they started to ask women who might fit the profile for their DNA samples. So women who had been single, like living single and on their own at that time, uh, maybe women who were single parents, you know, who never married, that kind of a thing. Um, but the people in Gorno were suspicious. They felt that asking for somebody's DNA was intrusive and cold and that the investigation was lacking a human element. What? A girl has died. What? You should be nicer. You should ask me nicer. What? Make right, me, exactly. Make me cookies before you ask for my DNA. What? No. No, a girl has died. Get, get over it. What? Right, exactly. And, you know, as a point, they're just asking people. They're not forcing them. Oh, my God. So if somebody is really that offended, they don't have to do it. But like you said, a young girl has been murdered. Like, don't you want the killer to be found? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, but the the investigators needed to carry on. They were like, okay, whatever, kind of trying to ignore it and keep on with their investigation. So they knew that from the early 60s onwards, Giuseppe would spend two weeks every May at a spa resort south of Milan without his wife. Mm. So they were like, okay, maybe we need to focus on the spa instead. So they found registries and, you know, information and tried to contact single women who had been there at the same time as him, but that didn't lead them anywhere. But Mel, 
What about married women who had been there at the same time as him? Oh, man, you're so good. You should Um, get a promotion. Oh, no. So police realized pretty early on that it was likely that the mother of unknown one hadn't been single, in fact, but was married just like Giuseppe was. And that they had had an affair and that maybe even her husband didn't realize that that son was not theirs. And as a note, divorce wasn't legalized in Italy until the 70s. Ah, because all of Rome or all of Italy was probably very Roman Catholic. As they still are. Yes. So people would often stay together, even if there was rampant infidelity in their relationship because they didn't have a choice. Hmm. So the police started to look more into what kind of contact would he have had with married women? You know what I mean? Like where would he have come across married women frequently? Right. And at the same time, Yara's family decided to hire their own expert. So a freelance geneticist to review and explain the case to them and the evidence that had been gathered. Understandably so. I mean, there's a lot going on here. Neither of them are geneticists. So they just want to understand better how are the police coming to these conclusions? How are they, you know, how do they know these things? All that kind of stuff. Right. And if they, you know, if the police don't have, like, in in um, in the U.S., we have a lot of times what's called, like, a victim's liaison who will do things like literally their full-time job is to explain the details of the case and evidence that becomes public to the victims of a crime. But it sounds right. like they didn't have that in Italy at this time, or maybe they still don't in, in parts of Europe, or maybe this investigation just couldn't afford it because of how much money they were spending otherwise. But yeah, no, that's totally fair. Like, it, it seems like they needed somebody to be a liaison for them. to Right, like to be their advocate, Yeah, essentially. Right. Not saying that the police didn't care about them, but, you know, this is somebody whose sole job was to just work with the family. Right, and, you know, the police, like, Working with the family, especially now that they have a lead that they can drive towards, working with the family gets them no closer to the actual murderer. Yes, because they've ruled out everybody in the family as a suspect. Right. It's a, it's you know, it's a cold, calculated thing, but it's, it makes sense. Like expending the resources on that will probably get them to the killer slower. So I get it. Right. Exactly. So this geneticist, uh, Giorgio Portera lobbied for almost an entire year to have Giuseppe exhumed. And the reason why he did this is because he was concerned that investigators had only been able to compare 13 short tandem repeat regions. So those are sequences of DNA. And typically, you need 15 of those to confirm paternity. So he was saying, I don't think we have enough information. We should exhume his body get a sample of DNA and test it and double check, which honestly fair. Yeah. You know, the worst thing that could happen is that they've been going off, you know, these stamps and it's not a perfect sample. And then as it turns out, it was wrong or something. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, there's probably like a high likelihood from those, you know, 13 of 15 or 13 of however many actual sequences they have. But, you know, Best to be sure before you expend the over many more millions of euros you already are expending on on this particular line of thought. Right, exactly. 
So on March 7th, 2013, workmen chiseled away at Giuseppe's um, loculo, which is the horizontal slot in the cemetery where his coffin was kept, and they retrieved his remains. And locals watched quizzically, being like, "What? what's going on here? As his body was taken to Bergamo for testing and then returned a few hours later. So with the DNA extracted from Giuseppe's remains, 29 short tandem repeat regions were compared. So we have even more than 15 at this point. We have like twice as many. Right. Well, they have. They should have a full DNA profile if they got any marrow out of his remains. So. Right. So it was now 100% absolutely certain that Giuseppe was the father of unknown one. So this got out to the public as, you know, as it do. And gossip spread like wildfire throughout these villages. Oh, God. Because now they understand why police have been questioning these women for their DNA samples. Ah, because the police never actually explained that line of thought before. Exactly. They didn't tell anybody publicly, hey, this is what we're doing and why we're doing it. But now everybody knows. So now they're probably going to get a massive influx of, of samples from a ton of people. So you're going to have people gossiping because they're like, well, I want to know who is having an affair. Oh, yeah, right. I forgot about that part. <laughs> um, oh, no. So, in fact, right. Like, also, there's that human, humans like to gossip element. National Enquirer line of thought. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so a journalist said, we have discovered that a cursed desire for gossip, which spices up all small town life. Now here, everyone wants to know who son so and so is. I'm and so, so there glad. were some journalists. I'm so right. Gl- so at the <laughs> uh, I'm so glad I don't live in a small town too. But oh right. man. So at this time journalists started to kind of do their own investigating and they discovered five illegitimate children between two villages alone. Oh my god. They're just so, ruining lives. <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit toward the end. But yeah, I mean, everything that people are thinking is true is turning out not to be true. People are finding out uncomfortable truths about their families and themselves. So, you know, definitely now it's more than just Yara's family who has had suffering. My and dad, certainly yeah. the suffering of something like this is not as traumatic or as great as somebody being murdered, but I mean, this this is also, like, big stuff. You're finding out that the milkman's probably your father. Like, there's there's a lot going on here. Right. So now I want to talk a little bit about uh, Rugri's right-hand man. So, after all of this, it would be an old-fashioned detective who would break the case wide open. So, Marshal Giovanni... Moserino was Ruggeri's right-hand man, and he even had an office right next to hers. Can so I'm ask, not, I'm not kidding. Can I ask Marshall his first name or his title? Marshall is his title. Giovanni is his first name. Dang. Okay. I'm sorry to let you down. So Giovanni had been living in the Bergamo Alps area since the 80s. He wasn't born there, but he'd been there for quite a long time, so he knew the region intimately. And just as a sidebar here, he's kind of a badass, just like Ruggeri is. Uh, he was a man with his, like, bushy gray hair and black-rimmed glasses. And he was the self-described um, Capotosta, which is a stubborn man. And he gave, like, a, you know, kind of quick interview to a journalist. And I just love this quote. He said, I get fucked off when I can't solve a case. 
<laughs> because of this case, I haven't had a holiday for four years. Oh my god. I get fucked <laughs> off. <laughs> right, so I just thought that that was... It explained who he was, pretty succinctly. Yeah. Yep. So he was actually talking with locals frequently about the case, and he found himself having to constantly remind them that, okay, yes, the intrigue in the town is you're trying to figure out who Giuseppe was sleeping with, but at the heart of this case, a young girl was murdered. So, like, keep that in mind, y'all. This isn't just, like, a juicy gossip bit. I mean, somebody was murdered. Right, so he he's the one that's constantly reminding people, like, like, you know, somebody's asking a question and somebody else, like, waves someone over and is like, hey, hey, did you hear that so-and-so was sleeping with so-and-so? And he's the one being like, come on, a girl died here. Ah, like, he's... Right. He's he's constantly the dramatic character in your in your crime scene investigation. Exactly. <laughs> and by 2013, Giovanni knew everything about Giuseppe's life. Oh, God. Right. Um, another sidebar is that in the summer of 2013 in um, Rue, a town nearby, they found a log in the visitor's uh, book of their hospital's chapel that said, tell the police in Bergamo the killer of Yara was here. God forgive me. Oh, my goodness. But that didn't actually lead to anything. So I don't want to spend too much time on it. Now, was it actually written by her killer or not? I couldn't find anything confirming or denying that. So, I mean, I think there's a good chance that somebody just lied. Did that. Some, some, some darn high school kid. Right. <laughs> wow. So, like I said, Giovanni knows everything about Giuseppe's life. So, like I said, Giuseppe had been a bus driver. And he had driven a bus route in the 60s and 70s in the area that would have carried a lot of women to and from work because the bus route specifically led from these small towns to textile factories nearby. And at the time, most of the workers at these textile factories were women. So they were like, huh, maybe we need to study his bus route a little bit more. Hmm. So Giovanni questioned Giuseppe's fellow bus drivers. And one had already gone to the press and said that Giuseppe had once confessed to, quote, having a woman in trouble, end quote, which at the time usually meant pregnant. Oh, oh, <laughs> that's not the trouble. I, that, that 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 surprised me. OK, <laughs> he didn't murder anybody as far as we know. I mean, I, I was just thinking he had a woman in trouble, <laughs> like like, no, oh, okay. like, like he just had had, you know, an affair with someone. But no, a woman in trouble means literally she's pregnant. Right. And another bus driver that Giovanni questioned called Giuseppe was a man with a capital M. <laughs> suggesting that he was a womanizer. <laughs> He's got a big ego. Right. Man. It wasn't until June 2014, however... That a protected source, so Giovanni has never given up his source, gave him a name. Mm. Esther Arzuzzi. Okay. So, like I said, June 2014 came. It's been three years since Yara was murdered. And the police are continuing their search, knowing full well that, like, it's possible the killers fled the country. Or the killer's dead. Or... 
you know, all manner of things. It's there's a lot of time has passed. Um Yeah. So Esther is the woman that Giuseppe had a had an affair with. What we're getting to it. We're getting to it. Okay. So a name has been whispered to Giovanni, our our police detective. And that name is Esther. Okay. Protected source. Yes. So Esther had been Giuseppe's neighbor in the 60s in a town called Ponte Selva. At 19, she married Gianni Bossetti from Pare, which was a nearby village. And Gianni was sullen and kind of quiet. He had had a hard life. He had been orphaned at a young age. He suffered from psoriasis, arthrosis, and depression. And so he was really, like, pulled into himself. You know, he was not an outgoing, friendly guy. However, Esther was outgoing, and she was social and fun. She was described as a good-looking woman who dyed her hair and who liked to wear short skirts, which is like in the 60s and 70s was possibly more scandalous than it is now. Yeah. But anyway, she's pretty confident in herself. Good for her. Yeah, good for her. She also happened to work at a textile factory, and she took the bus to and from work every day. So at this time, Ruggeri's team is like, okay, we should check her DNA because this is seeming, you know, like a pretty good lead to go off of. And they actually found that her DNA had been tested in June of 2012 willingly, so she had volunteered it. Oh. But due to an error, her DNA had been compared to Yara's DNA and not to Unknown One's DNA. Oh, my God. Right. I know. I know. Right. When I read that, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Who did this? This. Okay. When people say like. When people get mad at like IT for being like incompetent or at the police for being incompetent, like this was some person who just literally did the wrong comparison in their in their database of DNA. And like they, they didn't set up. Like, the fact that they could have even wrongly compared the sample to the suspect DNA is is in and of itself a failure of the system to begin with. Like, that should have never even been possible. Like, they, somebody, they should have just had, like, a network or a, a, a software engineer on hand to make sure that whatever test case they were doing when they collected DNA samples was always consistent and always the same. This is like how murderers get off. Too, because right. somebody in a lab misinterpreted or, or or clicked the wrong button when they were doing different comparisons, and you end up with doubt in the system. And when you have doubt in your testing practices, that leads to reasonable doubt in court, which means that killers go free and rapists go free. Like, yeah, uh, that's okay. And I know that's no one's fault in particular. It's a fault of the system and it's a fault of like a misunderstanding at systems level and human error. Yeah. And, and human error in general. But, oh, man, that's a, that's a frustrating error to have. Oh, I completely agree. And it was years ago. So they're already like, well, damn, <laughs> like we, we had all the information we needed. We could have we could have been two years ahead here. Right. So obviously now they're like, OK, we need to retest this. And yes, it came back as positive. Esther is the mother of unknown ones. Yep. So Esther and her husband had three children. They had twins, a boy and a girl, and another son. And in 1970, Esther had left Ponte Serva 
but had clearly continued, or Selva, excuse me, but had clearly continued her affair with Giuseppe because her twins were fathered by him. And she named her son, so the twins were a boy and a girl, like I said, and she named her son Massimo Giuseppe Bassetti. Oh my god, the cheekiness of this woman. Yeah. Oh, man. And at this point, so, you it's know, now It's a shame he's a murderer, because this is a really good gossip story. Like, this, this is <laughs> truly good gossip, and it's a shame that a girl died, but man... This town's got... Right, the intrigue. The intrigue. This town has amazing gossip. Truly. Well, and like I said, or I started to say, now we're in 2014, and Esther now lived in Brambate. So the police had circled back to the town where they started. Oh, my God. Okay. So Massimo, who's looking pretty likely to be our guy, am I right? Oh, yep. Um, He was a 42-year-old married father of three. He lived in Mapello. Where Yara's phone had last pinged, for those of you who can't remember from last week, that's fine, I don't blame you. And he was a bricklayer. He also hadn't submitted a DNA sample willingly, like many others had. Which, okay, that doesn't mean he's guilty, but I mean, a little suspicious, right? A little suspicious. Yep. He had been given the nickname The Animal, because he loved to party. That's... He was... His nickname was... After Rob Schneider? <laughs> uh, unclear if it was organically derived separate from that or from it. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So police have to be careful, right? Because they've already made one false arrest in the case. So they can't really chance that again. So he was under suspicion, but police had to be really careful. Not only because... They've already made a boo-boo once, but also because they don't want to spook him and have him go into hiding or flee the country. Right. So they decide that the best course of action after following and surveilling him is to bamboozle him. Which, okay, I'm here for it. Yeah, I mean, if he's gotten away for three years and, you know, you see the police going off, like you, you hear rumors about police pursuing you know, leads in towns dozens of miles away and you're not even, you know, like they're they're not even asking or probing for your DNA or anyone you know or your mother who, as far as you know, is, you know, like, did he know that his father was Giuseppe? Probably not. Probably not. So if you see the police going off in this whole opposite line of questioning where it's like, a town your mother used to work in a textiles factory in, but like, she hasn't lived there for years, and they're requesting DNA samples over there. You probably are thinking you're free and clear. Right. Like, the police probably well, have a, a wide breadth that they can take here in terms of spooking him that they can get away with. They could probably walk up to him on the street, and he'd be like, oh, hello, and just think that he's totally free and clear. Right. So, I love this. So, to add to the intrigue, what the police decide to do is that they would set up a roadblock in his path on the way home and that they would test everyone who was driving through doing random quote-unquote uh breathalyzer testing so as not to raise his suspicions but to do breathalyzer testing you have to put your mouth on something right but whatever it's fine right it's It's fine. fine okay 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 i'm ready so the day of the ruse arrived 
So a police officer stops Massimo while he's in his car with his wife. The police officer does one breathalyzer test and then acts like it didn't work. So he collects a second breathalyzer test. So now police have two samples of Massimo's DNA. Smart cop. Right. So as far as they know at this point, they do it. He drives off. Massimo doesn't suspect anything. So now they just need to compare his DNA to that of unknown one. So they rush the DNA for overnight testing because they're like, we need to know, like, now. Yep. And on the 16th of June, 2014, they received a call. Massimo was unknown one. Unknown one is no longer unknown. Right. Unknown one is now Massimo. And the results showed 21 compatible markers. So 16 to 17 is normally enough to confirm a sample. But they had 21. So they are, like, pretty sure that it's him. This is definitely the same dude. Definitely the same dude. There's no no question. Right. And so a geneticist actually said that... The chances that Massimo's DNA would match kind of like randomly with unknown one was two times 10 to the negative 27. So it's him. So less less than the amount of atoms in a mole. That's that's an outrageously like small chance. Right. So it is not like, oh, there's a 50-50 chance it's him or not. No, this is, it's him. That's like, there's there's several million times that chance for you to win the lottery tomorrow. Right. Like that, that's <laughs> to how, give you some perspective. That's how small of a chance that he is not unknown one. Right. There is. So Rukuri would have preferred at this point to examine Massimo some more, watch his movements, and then make an arrest. But she was worried that news of their discovery would leak and that he would flee town. Which, with all the gossiping, like, I don't think she's necessarily wrong. Mm -hmm. So that same day, on June 16th of 2014, they arrested Massimo for the murder of Yara. And police then found some circumstantial, excuse me, evidence as well. So, for instance, Massimo hung out around Yara's house pretty often. Didn't really have a reason to, but he did. Uh, he went to a tanning salon to get spray tans about a block from her house. Hmm. Right. Um, he parked his car behind the gym. And possibly most spamming, his internet searches revealed what appeared to be a sexual interest in pubescent girls. Oh, God. But, like, okay, maybe even more than that, though. Phone records showed that his phone had been present in Brimbate de Sopra the evening of Yara's disappearance, but that the phone had been turned off from 5.45 p.m. Remember that time? Like, that's when we think that something happened to her, 5.45 p.m.? Mm-hmm. That night until the next morning at 7.34 a.m. So in the mountains of Bergamo, the villagers felt this huge sense of relief. The killer was from Lower Bergamo, <laughs> and not one of them. Oh, my God. That was the talk of the town. Oh, there's lower Bergamans. Right, always be murdering our children. Oh, my God. So the aftermath of this case. 
So a byproduct of the investigation into Yara's disappearance and death really shook this small town. So Esther's husband learned that not only were the twins not his biological children, but neither was his second son. Uh, Right. Oh, my God. So, and that son was fathered by someone other than Giuseppe as well. Wow. And all of this while he had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Oh. Oh, Yeah, I feel really bad for him. Oh, my God. Like, that's. That is a shitty hand to be dealt. That's an SNL sketch right there, but that is, except it's real life, and it's just some poor man. Oh, my God. Well, and possibly, I don't know if, I don't know how I feel about this, but Esther still claims to this day that she never cheated on her husband, which I'm like, girl, <laughs> girl, girl. I can't, I sat on a, it was from a public restroom. I sat on, I, I sat I used a porta potty once. I think that's what it's for. At least twice. Twice. I used it twice. Goodness. Goodness. Exactly. Like, I, oh my god. Nah, she's faithful. It's... I believe her. Okay. I okay. That, I'm lying. I'm lying to you. I don't. I don't <laughs> believe her. I don't believe her at all. But man, that's tragic. Right, and then Giuseppe's wife also had to come to terms with the fact that her husband had been cheating on her. She didn't know that. She didn't have any inkling or suspicion. So then she finds this out after her husband has died. So she can't even, like, confront him. She can't even be like, dude, what the fuck? Why are you cheating on me? Because he's dead. Hmm. And so, you know, like I said, police uncovered this entire web of infidelity and and secrets in this town, like, due to their forensic testing, to find unknown one. This is why you should and never cheat. Even though police, huh? This is why you should never cheat because your illegitimate son might end up murdering someone and then you'll get found out. That, and then that, you'll be exposed. Yeah, that's why you should never cheat. That's the reason, totally. Nothing else, just N- that. No other reasons, yes. Just no that. other reason. Yeah. So even though police had found their suspect and you would think that these small villages would breathe a sigh of relief to end this chapter move on many were critical of how long it took police to solve the case which like okay i guess from the outside i understand but at the same time this is a lot of shit for them to like go through and not a lot to go off of to start this is a lot of work and a lot of like secrets and this is a lot of it's a lot of people who have secrets that don't want uncovered anyways, clearly. I mean, there's obviously a lot of people living who have, who have been having affairs and all sorts of things that like, I'm sure, I'm sure the information you're giving me is just the details they uncovered about the affairs that pertain directly to this case. But if, yeah, more were found. A I'm, lot more were found. I'm sure there's entire webs. I'm sure. I'm sure that Giuseppe had cousins who were having affairs and and all sorts of. Because it's a small town, and that's. I hate to say it, but small towns are kind of nefarious for these types of things. Right. So. And then. Uh huh. Yeah, I don't know. It's. Uh, the other part of me also wants to also be critical, at least of the police's like information systems management 
in some way. Right. <laughs> because they had all of the evidence necessary to actually pursue this line of thought without even going through the human element because Esther had submitted a a, a DNA sample previously of her own volition. So they didn't even have to like go down this line of thought to get all the evidence that they had to find the killer. All they had to do was I agree. correctly test the DNA 18 months prior and they would have had it. Right. So it's it's a little like all things it's it's a little bit shades of gray just a little bit right and I mean other people were also critical about these leaks to the media and the frenzy that it caused so people were like hey now it's going to be impossible for Massimo to receive a fair trial because he's already been found guilty in the eyes of his peers and that's a, that's a fair thing to say like clearly he's probably the one that's guilty especially considering he's you know the DNA evidence and everything but a fair trial is something everybody is entitled to and considering the national coverage this has gotten and the fact that he's a child of infidelity and all of these other things and in, you know, Roman Catholic small town Italy, like that's that's a hard nut to crack. Good for him. Not looking good for him at all. Right. And also Italy's privacy watchdog criticized the case, citing the, you know, irreparable damage that had been done to family and personal relationships. And that they said this wasn't an acceptable outcome even if in the course of the damage the killer had been found. I disagree. I'm just going to throw that out there. I wholly disagree with that. Like, just because this town was full of shitty people doesn't mean that when their shittiness is outed, it's the police's fault. <laughs> right. And I guess that how I sort of feel about it is, barring the mistake with their database, how else would they have found... You know what I mean? Right. If Esther, like, putting that aside, how would they have come... How would they have found the killer? Right. Pretend Esther hadn't submitted a DNA sample. And, and you know, we're basically back to where that is. They would have never found the killer had they not dug. So it's like, you want... As, as soon as things become a little bit too interpersonally difficult, you want the police to stop investigating any major crime? Like, come on. It's just not possible. Right. So, anyway. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's so speaking of Massimo, I uh, just want to share a little bit about him before we, uh, you know, before we have our parting thoughts. Uh, he was at work when the, he was arrested by police in front of his coworkers, and he was a little miffed about that, apparently. He had no prior criminal record, and he professed his innocence immediately. Um, side note, after he was arrested, two different men came forward to say that they had had affairs with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, they did or not? I don't know, but I'm like, oh my god, when will this stop? But that's that that's an amazing sentence that you just said. That's wow, wow. Right, right. And you know, kind of like unfortunately, talking about you know people who are damaged and how people have already found him guilty. Uh, his poor twin sister, just because she was his twin, got beaten up twice. Oh my god. Which, like, as far as we know, she has absolutely nothing to do with this. So don't beat her up. She literally has nothing to do with this. She's not even, like, genetically his twin. Because she's a lady. Like... Right. They don't share DNA. Yeah. Well, like, well, not the same DNA. Right. And for so, all we know, she could have a different father, maybe. That's possible, isn't it? I think that's possible. I, I think it was proven that she was Giuseppe's child, though. All right, fine. Still. So his wife made a statement saying that Massimo had been home with her and his children the night that Yara disappeared. And Massimo was like, well, I have frequent nosebleeds. 
and some of my work tools were stolen, including a knife and a towel. So maybe that's how my blood got on those things. And that's how it got Tiara's remains. And police were like, sure, sure, Dan. <laughs> um, because regardless of the DNA evidence, you know, apart from what I mentioned earlier, police were able to match his vehicle to the white utility vehicle that had been spotted driving by the sports center that we talked about last mm-hmm. time. So this is the one the police had done a search for. And that, you know, car was seen on camera just minutes before Yara was disappeared, was taken, like, we're, you know. Mm-hmm. And Massimo denied that he had been purposely by the sports center being like, oh, I was just driving past on my way home from work. But police confirmed that he hadn't gone to work that day. <laughs> and okay. all of his coworkers were like, yeah, he didn't come to work that day. And forensic testing was done on his vehicle to see if other evidence had been found, and it couldn't. Um, and also his tools, he only reported missing, like, a long time after Yara had disappeared. So it seemed like he was, like, just sort of as an afterthought, like, I should get rid of yeah, some my tools. tools disappeared. Right. <laughs> so whatever. And, like, okay, I don't try to, like, rag on people for their personal appearance choices. But the dude had like a bleached blonde goatee. I mean, I, like, it's just you know, it's just suspicious to me. I'm sorry. I I see. Yeah. The fact that he, I don't, I don't want to profile. I don't like to profile. Like profiling, I think, is ineffective in almost every. Like, behavior profiling is one thing, but, like, profiling based on appearances and based on, like, especially physical indicators is usually very ineffective. He had a bleached goatee? Why didn't the police talk to him first? I don't... Right, and he did spray tanning. Like, I'm sorry, but I heard that, and I'm like, you're just an icky person. Yuck, like, he he is literally... He's, like, from New Jersey. <laughs> yes! But that is exactly it. And but I don't mean like 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 the state Jersey. I mean like Jersey Shore. I mean like the show right. that was popular in the early 2010s. Like this is right around. This is around the time when Jersey Shore would have been popular too. So obviously he watched it and he was trying to emulate these people. Oh man! As far as I know, they haven't committed murder though. So I mean, probably not. But. It's hard to know for sure. The point is, is gross. So was he was he convicted? Well, hold up, my bro. We're getting okay. there. Okay, okay. So they did forensic testing on this vehicle to see if other evidence could be found, but unfortunately they couldn't. And I mean, with it being a work vehicle, it's very likely that it had been detailed and cleaned. Well, but, I mean, you know, they had to do it. I mean, in three years of just normal use, like a work vehicle probably has stuff taken in and out of it all the damn time. So... Is a very real possibility that even if, without it being detailed or heavily cleaned, all the evidence would have just been gone or muddled anyways. So, Right, right. So on July 3rd, 2015, Massimo's trial began. So he still claimed that he was innocent. And his wife stuck to her testimony as well, you know, saying that he had been home having dinner with his family on the day of Yara's disappearance. And the defense really zeroed in on Yara's teacher, Sylvia, at trial. Um, 
so they had Sylvia's father testify, and he said that his daughter cried all night when Yara disappeared, apparently for no reason, just like out of the blue. And she couldn't explain why she and her brother had been texting that night during Yara's disappearance and then almost immediately deleting the messages, whereas other messages hadn't been deleted at all. Okay. And actually, some pretty shocking information was revealed at trial. Um, so forensic evidence showed that some, like, dark halos, which usually indicate blood on the sleeve of Yara's jacket, um, contained DNA from Sylvia. Hmm. And there was no way that this DNA had been left as contact DNA since it had remained after being exposed to the elements for three months. So the conclusion was that the DNA came from a significant source like blood. Mm. And Sylvia didn't do so well on the stand when she was at trial. She kept saying, I don't know. Um, you know, especially when they're like, well, how did your DNA get on your sleeve? And she's like, I don't know. Like all this kind of stuff. Um, so is this, I mean, Sylvia was her gymnastics teacher. Is that correct? Right. So, I mean, like she could have just gotten injured and she could have helped her or something. I guess. I don't know. There's, there are ways right. that I see that happening. Like, I live with somebody who does circus, so, like, I, injuries happen pretty frequently. Right. So, I'm not saying that any of this means that she was involved, but, I mean, the defense needs to try and make reasonable doubt. Like, that's kind of their main goal. So, right. this is what they're trying to, like, you know, be giving reasonable doubt on. Yeah. And so... And here's, like, where the science gets a little bit more tricky, and I don't know as much about it. But they also said that the DNA sample was nuclear and not mitochondrial. So they were saying that, like, you couldn't trust the DNA sample as much as the police were trying to trust it. Hmm. But then scientists rebuffed this, saying that the lack of mitochondrial DNA wasn't a concern. And basically that they were just trying to throw your direction yeah because mito so mitochondrial dna is usually usually used to um determine things like lineage like it's much easier with mitochondrial mm -hmm. dna to at least as far as i know this is a, a layman's understanding to right it can go back many generations yeah yeah it's it's the way like with basically any DNA, you can tell if somebody is somebody's father or not. But mitochondrial DNA is required to know if uh, your, you know, that person on the street is your fifth cousin thrice removed or whatever. Like it's it's right. It's a much more surefire way of determining lineage. But when you're talking about comparing two different DNA samples, mitochondrial DNA is not necessary. Right. And like we said, there are some circumstantial evidence against Massimo as well that we already discussed. Um, interestingly as well, the fibers in Yara's wounds proved a match for the same types of fibers that were found in Massimo's car. So they didn't find direct evidence of Yara in his car, but they found the same sorts of fibers. Right. Which, once again, like I said, that's circumstantial. It's not hard proof. Right. But his alibi is looking thinner and thinner. The real proof is in the DNA that was his blood on her body. Right, exactly. And also circumstantial, possibly not real, but interesting anyway. Um, a local woman testified that around 7 p.m. on the night the Yara disappeared, 
She had been taking her trash out at her home nearby when she saw a vehicle matching Massimo's uh, drive by her at really high speeds. And she said that she saw a child in the car, although at the time she couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. Um, And this lady heard screaming from the vehicle, although the screaming abruptly cut off as she looked up. Oh, my goodness. Okay, and so that's she pretty immediately damning. reported the sighting. Yeah, and she immediately reported the sighting to police when she heard of Yara's disappearance. So she heard that Yara disappeared, and she was like, oh, hey. Oh. <laughs> like, here's this weird thing that happened. Yeah, seems fair. Huh. And also, Massimo tried to make this claim that he was only ever at home with his family at night. Like, he never did anything other than go home to his family. And three different people were like, yeah, that's not true at all. Hmm. <laughs> So things are not looking good for Massimo. Yeah, they really aren't. So on July 1st, 2016, a verdict was reached. Guilty. Massimo was sentenced to life in prison for the kidnapping and the murder of Yara. And he was also ordered to pay monetary compensation for his crimes. And that totaled to 1.3 million euros. So effectively, if he makes any money while he's in prison for the rest of his life by working while in prison, all of it is going to go to the family. Forever. Yes. And three months after this, Massimo filed for an appeal, but it was pretty quickly denied by the courts. All right, then. So Yara's family has still chosen to stay out of the spotlight. They're still kind of a quiet couple. Um, A while after Yara's you know, death and after the trial, there was the gymnastics, like award essentially placed, you know, set up in her name. And they, you know, they went to an event about that, but they still looked like they had before pretty uncomfortable with the whole thing. So after all of that, they were finally able to find unknown one. Wow. That's a crazy, crazy story. Like that's a crazy case. It's stranger than fiction. I mean, yeah, with all of the with all of the cheating, honestly. The amount of cheating and intrigue in those small towns is just amazing. I agree. Man, I, uh, I just keep thinking about the poor guy who got diagnosed with cancer and then found out that all three of his children were not his children. Right, as it turns out, he doesn't have any children. Right. And then one of his sons is also a uh, pedophile and murderer. I shouldn't say pedophile. That wasn't proven. But, well, it was. He had a thing I feel for, pretty confident in thinking that he was a pedophile. Uh, he had a thing for preteens. They, they found that on his computer, right? Yeah. There's a very Chris Hansen thing going on there. Man, that's really sad, though. Poor Yara. It is. So that is the story... Of the murder of Yara Gambirazio. Wow. That's a hell of a story. 